For those who fish, this is the Drake Cast, a voice for fly fishing culture and conservation. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. It could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. This episode is brought to you in part by the adventure guides at the Eleven Experience. Picture this. You're in the Bahamas, the sun's setting behind you, and you see a big tarpon roll. The tide was coming in, and, you know, we're anchored up, we're in a deep spot. But the chef says it's time for dinner. What do you do? Well, if you're on an adventure with the Eleven experience... Made a cast, and I stripped out some line, and my line was going out towards the mangrove with the tide, so I, I just walked into the dining room with my rod sat down at my dinner and I was holding my rod in one hand and eating a filet mignon steak with the other. Then I got a hit, setting the hook from the dining room table. <laughs> the line's going out the door, out the back of the boat, and we can hear this big tarpon jumping in the distance. That's really cool. That was fun. Redefine surf and turf with the Eleven Experience. For a complete list of their operations worldwide, visit elevenexperience.com. Or let's say you're not as into the whole tarpon fishing from a boat thing. Maybe you prefer to heed the call from land. I was in Costa Rica at a surf break there. This is Andy Stepanian, the co-founder of Howler Brothers, another sponsor of our show. And he's talking about the moment that inspired him to start putting roosters and purple shrimp and flowers on old-timey long-sleeve shirts. We were eating breakfast. That's when we heard these... You know, howler monkey, a powerful sound. And whenever I'm hearing that, I knew I was doing something that I loved. And so when we hit on howler, we knew this was the essence of what we were trying to do. Ever since that first primordial scream in the Costa Rican jungle, Howler Brothers has been designing clothes for the moments before, during, and after your adventure. If you want the full story behind the brand, check out episode number 50 of this podcast. If you want to be wearing the coolest shirt at your friend's next grill out, check out their website at howlerbros.com. Heed the call. And as always, ever since the very beginning, this episode is sponsored by our good friends at Scott Fly Rods. The other day, I got on the phone with Amy Hazel, the co-owner of Deschutes Angler in Maupin, Oregon. Where we fish for steelhead and beautiful rainbow trout. But when Amy isn't chasing Samanids, she's in the middle of the South Pacific. I host trips to Christmas Island. And it was on these trips that... I fell in love with Scott Flyrod. Because... They're light, and it feels like you're casting a 10-weight when you're actually throwing a 12-weight line and casting the GTs. If you want a bag of GT, which, I mean, come on, we all do. You got to bring out the big guns. You're walking the flats, and all of a sudden your guide starts going, and you look up two black shadows just moving at about 20 miles an hour on the edge of a big flat. And of course, your heart is just beating out of your chest. You have one chance to get that fly in front of them. When you only got one shot, make sure you're using the best and the lightest tools out there. Check out the new Sector and the rest of the Scott Quiver at scottflyrod.com. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the DrakeCast. It's been a while, but as of right now, despite the fact that no one was asking for it, we're back for a little bit. 
Six episodes, roughly one a month, will come out between now and the end of 2021. Today is the first of those episodes. And at its root, it's really the story of the fine line between exploration and exploitation. And it takes place up north. Big land, forest wilderness, America's last frontier, the state of Alaska. Come visit Alaska. Incredible treasures await you. Steelhead, Chapter 2, Alaska. We have four exits in this aircraft. The two back doors have handles right behind where the seat is there. The date, May something, 2018. Location, Juneau, Alaska. If you need anything, my name's Ellie. I'll be out there the whole time. Just let me know. Enjoy. Airplanes are the best means of getting from place to place. 70 miles west of Juneau is the tiny town of Elfin Cove, Alaska. You can only get there by boat or float plane. The town's one bar, the marine gas station, and the numerous fishing lodges are all connected by docks and wooden boardwalks instead of roads. One of the lodges in this town is the aptly named Elfin Cove Resort, which I was going to call home for the next five days. During the main ocean fishing season, which roughly runs the summer months, Elfin Cove normally froths with meat hauling gear guys aiming to fill their freezers. But in May of 2018, hardly anyone was in town. We were certainly the only non-commercial fishermen. And we were not there for your typical halibut jigging or king trolling. This place is just really special. When you come out here, you get a really just this feeling of wildness and adventure. You see so much wildlife, that kind of untouched stuff that everybody's kind of looking for. And uh, I mean, you're away. And that feeling, that feeling is really the reason why I come back every time. Elfin Cove is situated in the heart of the Tongass National Forest, which is basically that skinny tail of coast and islands that sticks out of the bottom right corner of Alaska sandwiched between British Columbia and the open Pacific Ocean. The rivers of the Tongass are what many claim to be the final frontier of steelhead fishing. Hundreds of streams, many unnamed, and almost no one to fish them. Except us. This is the story of what we found. The town of Elfin Cove was originally called Gunk Hole which was a name used by commercial fishermen back on the eastern seaboard for really any safe harbor. In the 1930s, when a few of those former east coasters who had moved to Alaska in search of fisheries that hadn't yet been destroyed by man, the townsfolk decided they needed a post office and a more fitting name. Stealing the moniker from a local's fishing boat, Elfin Cove came into recorded existence. The next 85 years of Elfin Cove history contains an aging sex worker, a mail-order bride, and a place called Elliot's Meat Storage, all of which seemingly pay homage to the town's original name of Gunk Hole. These days, Elfin Cove has 12 full-time residents, but that number can swell to 200 in the summer months when the rain resides and the bite is hot. This is kind of a cool setup, though. You got like a nice mic and everything, too. This is Kieran Oliver, a guide at Elfin Cove Resort. Kieran's got to be close to six feet tall, skinny, usually has a smile on. All of those features coupled with his slight mountain twang make him just easy to be around. And Kieran was actually the reason I was up there. 
he had invited a handful of folks to come experience this new fishing operation. For us to be guinea pigs. Could he sell a steelhead fishing trip like this to other folks? But the idea for this trip actually began about a decade ago, when Kieran first started coming up to Elfin Cove. I was working on the dock, flaying fish, and working on boats, and yeah, all the uh, the grunt work. It's terrible work. Yeah, and it's not good money either. <laughs> then I got my captain's license. And then he started taking folks out trolling and jigging. Everyone out here fishes the ocean. That's what they do. But you would go in to these rivers, found some good populations of salmon, uh, Dolly Varden. With my background in fly fishing, I kind of saw an opportunity. The Tongass National Forest and its nearly 17 million acres are home to 5,000 watersheds that support salmon. So Kieran started taking clients out fly fishing for these salmon and Dolly Varden, getting folks out of the boats, put a bead or a pink streamer on the end of a fly line, and boom, the lodge business model has diversified. And while he was on the rivers during the summers, he started asking a question. Know what fish also like salmon streams? With that lingering thought in mind, he started asking around with the locals. The thing about steelhead fishermen is they don't really like to talk to you about steelhead fishing. It's the etiquette. A lot of it was just personal exploration going in there. And um, a lot of guys even told me there's no steelhead that live in these rivers. And... uh, you won't find anything. Yeah, and what were you finding when you were specifically going out searching for steelhead? A lot of nothing. <laughs> In addition to not many folks wanting to talk about it, the fishing was hard for several other reasons. First, these rivers are small, and so are their runs. Second, the fish don't tend to hang out in the rivers for very long. Or maybe they do, but until about mid-April... The whole area is covered in snow and ice, and the rivers are all but inaccessible. When they come in, they're generally coming in all together, and they're pushing in given the certain conditions. So you're looking for that. And when they are there, they're there. But that window is smaller, and it's hard to track down. That's the hardest part. Like It's not hard to catch a steelhead out here. Those fish will bite. I mean, they're going to eat it when it's in front of them, but... It's all about timing with these steelhead, for sure. Eventually, after a few years of probing around... We got a jet boat. You could get up in there and start to catch fish. And um, you could see that this was, you know, with some fine-tuning, that there was a possibility of catching fish. And while the fishing can be hard, when it happens... You're catching fish that are not touched. That's the most beautiful thing about this whole thing, is these fish that you're drifting your fly past, they haven't seen a fly ever. They haven't even seen a human being ever. You're one of maybe a handful of people who have ever even caught a fish on this river. That's really the coolest aspect, I think, of this whole thing is the the untouched nature of this fishery. Kieran had expanded Elfin Cove Resort into a salmon fly fishing destination, but now he wanted to take it even further to get his clients to be some of the first people to catch a fish on these unnamed rivers. This was all beyond intriguing to me. And I had good reason to be excited, because this was not my first steelhead trip into the Alaskan wilds. Alrighty, should we do a fish count? You counted. Oh yeah, I got nine, I landed nine. Nine total fish. Nine steelhead. 
The recording you're hearing right now is from a 2016 trip to an Alaskan river I can only describe as Steelhead Valhalla. This was the report from day two. I think I landed six. I, I think, think you I landed, landed six, six, and you had two that were pretty damn close. I had nine and one that was really close. 15 steelhead and more dollies than I count. I'm playing this tape right now to demonstrate that, at the time, I measured success based on how many fish I caught. I was strictly a numbers guy. So, a couple years later, when Kieran invited me to come up to Elfin Cove, I thought, heck yeah, let's go rack up some more double-digit days and help Kieran figure the fishery out. The first morning, we got going early. Dawn was just breaking as we loaded up the boats. So we are putting jet boat on the back to tow it behind the big boat. While Elfin Cove is home to a sizable port capable of holding 50 boats, where we were going was not. Behind our mothership, we had to drag a 22-foot jet sled, towing it at 100 feet of line, which meant that we could only move at a speed that guaranteed we wouldn't swamp the precious cargo. But this inconvenience was also a necessity. Uh, right now, we are uh, probably just like a half mile out. We just across this mud flat right here. So that's it. That's why we're in the little jet boat. Just shoot across that. So cool. yeah. Karen brought the boat up on plane and ripped us through skinny water to the mouth of an unnamed river where he had found a fish the week prior. Kieran parked the jet boat at the bottom of a juicy run on the small stream, which was maybe 60, 70 feet across. Not huge, but definitely large enough to hold a handful of steelhead. Right here on this big bend, we've got a tributary coming in here. So this is Drake Raditz. You may have met him in Steelhead Chapter 1, The Baiter and the Swinger. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen. Anyways, this is where I met Drake. Let's allow him to set the scene for us. And the river on the left-hand side is glacial. The river on the right-hand side isn't. So we got clear water coming in on the river right. If they're not right here up against those rocks right over there, they're going to be up in that clear water is my guess. Yeah. Yep. So I turned off my recording equipment and began to piece together my rod. Before I even had the entire thing put together, Drake announced to all of us that there weren't any steelhead around. He was sure of it. He'd already caught a sea-run cutthroat and a few dollies before I had even strung my line through the final guide of my rod. An hour and a half and countless dolly varden later, we all reluctantly admitted that he was right. I kept plunking my bobber in the nearest seam, pulling out dolly after dolly, just waiting for a steelhead to bite, convinced it was down there. But there wasn't a rainbow to be found. While we motored back to Elfin Cove, I asked Kieran about the fish he had found there the week before. Turns out he got a nice hen on the first cast and left it at that, because when they're there, they aren't hard to catch. But when they're not there... That night, I drank too much and woke up the next morning to a head-splitting hangover and the less-than-stellar news that we'd be spending the day trolling for King Salmon. I was there to catch a steelhead, which we had yet to encounter, and how could we catch them if we weren't even targeting them? Who wants to hear or read a story where no one catches a fish? Also, weren't we trying to figure out where the fish were so Kieran could sell these trips? The next two days were more of the same, hitting a river system that lacked fish, followed by a day of trolling. Only this time I didn't even go out. I opted to stay back at the lodge and, quote, work. 
which mainly revolved around coming up with ways to spin this trip as something other than a failure. In the middle of my discontent, I sat down with a fellow explorer. Israel Patterson, I'm a fly fishing guide in northern Colorado in the Estes Park area. I was going to CSU for a bit and the winters are cold, so on the nice spring days, I was more apt to be on the river fishing as opposed to sitting in a lecture hall. And one of these days, I came home and my wife looked at me and said, why don't you just become a fishing guide? And so I said to myself that that sounds like a great idea. Um, I walked into Kirk's Fly Shop, said, hey, you need any fishing guides? And they said, yeah, give us your number. We'll give you a call and just took off from there. I kind of specialize in their, their backcountry overnight trips. We'll take llamas and or backpacks up to high elevation lakes in Rocky Mountain National Park fishing for the uh, cutthroat trout that are up there. Israel is well into his 30s now. He's a great photographer. That's why he was there, to take some photos of the fish we were hoping to catch. But in a previous life, he was a Marine. And I'm just going to let him talk for a bit. Going in, it was young 18-year-old, man. It was like, all right, let's go to war. This is going to be awesome, you know? Everybody plays G.I. Joe's and sees Saving Private Ryan and think it's greatest thing ever. Then you go, and it's not. Um, it's, it's the worst humanity has to offer each other. So immediately upon getting out, uh, me and another good buddy of mine, Mark, um, we surfed. When we weren't in class, we were on the ocean, surfing, riding waves. And uh, we started to do a little fishing around that time, but neither one of it, he's from Oklahoma. Riding waves, man, I felt it today on the boat. Uh, Captain Kieran, I saw the swell coming in, I saw him slow down, and I knew exactly what he was doing, and you felt the wave pick you up, and you could just feel it gliding. And it just, instantly in that moment, I was back on Topsail Island, you know, riding a longboard, and it was amazing. And it's just, surfing is, it's pure, like, if Mother Nature doesn't want you riding waves, you're not riding waves. If it's flat, you know, you, the wind conditions need to be right, the tides, everything, it just has to come together for that one brief moment in time and you're gliding on water and it's amazing. For me, I think it's, it's the moving water. It's that constant connection with the earth and the water and it, it's flowing. I mean, when you're fishing, same thing, like they don't want to eat, you ain't gonna catch fish. It's just how it is, you know. You can try all you might, do everything you want to do and do it right, but at the end of the day, if conditions aren't right and Mother Nature don't want you catching those fish, it's just not gonna happen. Israel's approach was radically different from my own. And while I could logically understand where he was coming from, I was still far from agreeing with him. There's a simple pleasure to waking up in a town only accessible by boat or plane, with nothing to do but fish. I, however, was not experiencing said pleasure. I just wasn't in that state of mind. This was the last day, and whether or not we caught a fish was about to determine if the trip was worth my time. So what do we have going on right here? We are looking at a brown bear. Um, maybe 50 yards directly in front of us, across the river. After an hour-long boat ride, we stepped into what I thought was all too small of a river. I mean, the thing was only as wide as a driftless area trout stream. 
But Drake and the rest of the crew, they were excited about it. We're seeing a fast gradient stream. Um, we're just getting up to the head of the tidewater and looks like we're coming into our first pool that might have a steelhead in it. Some nice flat, soft water right up there on the bend, so. We walked past several waterfalls, scanning the unnamed river for signs of life. Well, the steelhead in a, in a fast gradient stream typically are larger. If they have waterfalls and white water that they have to navigate, they're usually the bigger, stronger fish. Um, the, the, you know, low elevation and flat gradient rivers, typically any fish can get up them and spawn, but these high gradient rivers like the one we're on right now, coming off these 10,000 foot peaks, um, should be bigger steelhead in this system. Cool, thanks man. I come in here, I haven't never caught a steelhead here, but I caught sockeye here and all the other species, you know, they're in here. But I only have been in here in like July. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's fish. I can't guarantee it, but uh, see this yellow yeah. rock right here? Yeah. He's He's been kind of moving Limited back and out. forth right in kind of behind that rock and then over into that dark spot. Like there's a little ledge right in there. Yeah. You kind of see there's a little hole. I don't see the fish right now, but I could have sworn that it had the whole outline and it was every once in a while I'd see his white lips, his mouth. I'd trust you on it. The mission was seemingly accomplished. As everybody had been saying, the fish will bite if you find them. And it was a smaller fish, you know, 20, 22, 24 inches. Drake stuffed a chunk of chew in his lip. There we go. And I made my way down to the river to swing a black woolly bugger in front of the fish's face. Didn't see anything move, but try that cast again. Yeah, you would have seen that fish. At least it would have come and looked at it, you know. Shoot. <laughs> With a feeling of defeat, I decided to walk around one more bend. I was uh, walking behind Elliot here in the river, and he said, what was it, oh shit or something? <laughs> oh my God, you see that? 30, 35 inch fish just came out. Anyway, which indicated to me he had spooked a fish, and sure enough, I glance up and there's a log swimming down towards me. I don't know, the thing was as long as my leg, as far as I'm concerned. Probably be bigger than that by the time I hit the lower 48. Right there, running up from the boulder right at your leg, dude. Here it is, it's right here. It's back behind the boulder. See it moving up? I saw my first steelhead ever. It was glorious. Huge fish. But it swam by probably five feet in front of me. I mean, crystal clear water. And then it turned and swam back upstream. I don't know, beautiful fish. That was a huge fish for this river. Red stripe. I was in awe, really. I mean, first steelhead I'd ever seen. Back down. See his wake, see his wake, see his wake, see his wake. Coming back down. Here on our last day, we finally saw one. <laughs> I ran a few casts in front of the fish's face, but didn't get any sort of reaction. Which makes sense. I had just scared the thing half to death. I was probably the only bipedal creature that fish had ever seen. I don't even know the names of any of the rivers we've looked at here. I don't even know if they have names, but we've just been exploring, trying to find these fish. And then like today, I saw that steelhead and all of that was worth it. And as Israel explained all of this to me on the last night of the trip, 
I started to get it. For him, the mission had been a success, just because we saw that one fish, in a river tucked away in the middle of nowhere. And the fact that we didn't catch it somehow made it all the sweeter. The next day, we flew back to Juneau from Elfin Cove, where I met a guy at the Greasy Spoon Diner by the airport. I don't know how, to, how I would describe myself. Please pardon the clanking cutlery. I'm a fly out fly fishing guy, and I work for Bear Creek Outfitters. As far as I know, we're the largest guided fly fishing operation in southeast Alaska, and may, I'm, I almost want to say the world. His name is Mark Hieronymus, and he looks like an Alaskan fly fishing guide. So much so that his big bushy beard and wind-worn facial features were part of a recent Sims Waiters campaign. To add to his fishy credentials, during the months of the year that he isn't guiding... I work for Trout Unlimited, trying to be the voice for fish when the fish don't have the voice. Working on some fairly common sense conservation measures uh, at the watershed scale. If you've ever heard of the Tongass National Forest, you probably have Mark and his fellow rabble-rousers at TU to thank. And the reason Mark feels such a strong need to protect these areas is because in this part of the country, fish are big business. The salmon of Southeast Alaska generate about a billion, that's billion with a B, or nine zeros, or however you want to put it, about a billion dollars of economic movement a year up and down the coast. And salmon need streams, which Mark is responsible for protecting. And part of that billion-with-a-B-dollar industry that Mark was talking about are operations like the one Kieran is trying to set up. And I was getting breakfast with Mark to talk about the likelihood of an operation like Kieran's succeeding, or for that matter, if it should even exist at all. But to answer that question, Mark had to start with some context. So, in southeast Alaska, there's 319 recognized steelhead streams. And I say recognized because that means they're included in the, uh, what's called the AWC, the Anadromous Waters Catalog. It's a legal document. AWC, Anadromous Waters Catalog. Keep that acronym in mind because we'll be coming back to it. What do you think the number is more accurately? I used to say 450 to 500, and I'm really... I'm really thinking it's larger than that. I mean, there's 5,000 streams in the Tongass. 5,000 anatomous watersheds in the Tongass. Over 18,000 miles of anatomous water in southeast Alaska. There's no way in hell that there's only 319 steelhead streams. It just means that somebody didn't look far enough. Meaning, if you spread out the pressure amongst those 500-plus streams, you're probably not having a huge impact on any specific fishery. But as we talked about before in this episode... In most of their range, they're exceptionally limited in their contact time with fresh water once they leave, once they go to sea. So the bulk of the watersheds in southeast Alaska that have steelhead have fewer than 200 adults, 200 spawning adults in any one year. You know, there's about 10% that have that 200 to 500. Then there's a relative handful, I mean, very few that have 500 up. As somebody who is potentially trying to set up an operation in here, it's really hard because in that five-mile watershed, there's 200 fish. What does a client have to want in order to, like, book that? You can't just sell these trips to somebody, let's bang out 20 steelhead a day, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's just not... If you've got 20 years on the ground, 
and you've been in the shoes of, of the guy that's standing there looking at the empty river with a group of clients, you know, you know where not to go and when not to go there. And you can kind of over that time get a portfolio of where to go that you can pretty much guarantee that there's going to be fish in as much as you can guarantee. But then nature throws curveballs all the time, you know. And I hate this expression. It just drives me crazy. But I'll say it right now. You want to find the guys that mean it when they say it's not, it's not about the fish. You know, fishing is about the fish. Otherwise, you picked a horrendously expensive sport to go stand outside, right? It's about the fish. It's, it's you know, you can go stand on a river anywhere. You can go stand on beautiful rivers. You can go stand on beautiful rivers that are full of fish. It's about, at, at some point or another, you have to accept the fact that you're there for the fish. Or you're there to be around the habitat of a fish. Now, I'll accept, I'll take that, you know. It's not all about the fish, it's about fish habitat. But it's still about the fish. By exploring these streams and finding salmon or steelhead or any anadromous fish in them, you're helping protect the watershed because you're getting that river listed in the AWC. As soon as the state knows those fish are there, the streams become a lot more difficult to impact. Future development, logging, roads being built, any of that stuff has to go through a much more rigorous approval process. So while it may be a slog, you're actually doing good by exploring. So the clients that I like, that I really like talking to about steelhead, that I really, you know, that, that I'm, I'm excited when they, when they actually commit and want to come up, are people that, that see an area or a place that functions perfectly without human intervention and doesn't need, frankly, doesn't want you there. You know, those are the kind of clients that really appreciate it. And when he was explaining these ideal clients, I couldn't help but think about myself, or more specifically, Israel, and maybe the angler that I want to be. What are your fears for these watersheds? Could they become overexploited? Too many guys flying into the lake and rowing down and bothering too many of those fish? Like <clears throat> That's already starting. It's the blessing and the curse about steelhead. They're resilient as hell. Yeah, usually even in those small runs of, you know, 200 fish or less, you get massive variation in life histories. Like the run might be 250 fish and you'll see 21, 22 different life histories. They're survivors. We can still kill them off though. And when you're talking about 250 fish and you're talking about monetizing that resource, you really have to step back and take a look at your impact. If you're doing it more than one, two, three days a year on that particular system, and you know that there's other anglers out there that are unguided or there's more angler pressure, you're just adding to the problem. So that's kind of, that's sort of that difficult thing. But there are places that you might be the only show, you might be the only one that's actually out there fishing. And as long as you're fairly responsible about it, you can monetize them. You know, you definitely have to limit your catch. You can't just go run amok. And while it may sound like Mark is up on a soapbox, he made sure to take responsibility for the impact he's had over his lifetime. Killed fish for a living. For my entire life, all I've ever done is kill fish. Monetize fish. Started out in the Pollock fisheries of the Bering Sea. Moved to the salmon fisheries of Cook Inlet. Pot and dive fisheries down here in Southeast. The salmon fisheries along the way. I uh, learned how to process salmon byproducts to make caviar. Started a caviar company up here and kind of became the equivalent of Planned Parenthood for salmon for 20 years. 
Yeah, I monetized fish. I don't think I've made a significant dollar since I was 18 years old on anything but fish, you know? Treated me pretty well. Giving back to the fish in some way, shape, or form isn't necessarily, you know, the. This isn't a Hallmark card. It's not me like suddenly having a come to Jesus moment wanting to conserve fish. I want the opportunity there for anybody else that comes along my path to monetize these things. You know, and my transition into guiding wasn't exactly conservation minded. I'm a guide. I catch 10,000, you know, my clients catch five to 10,000 fish a year. Some of those fish are going to die. It's a blood sport, right? But that's the way that I can monetize it with the least impact on the fish, doing all catch and release, all barbless hook. And then I can kind of pass on that ethos to the clients, too. I mean, we all did that growing up at some point where you're just, you know, catching fish just to catch fish and you're right in the middle of catching a whole bunch of fish so you're going to keep catching a whole bunch of fish more at least for me knowing what i know about the fish at some point you got to step back on these little streams and go you know what i had my one dance i had another dance maybe didn't touch the fish i'm just going to go fish watching i'm just going to go cruise around and lift fish i don't need to put hooks in their faces anymore and lift them out of the water or you know you know run them off their time that they're trying to get their thing on so yeah, we can't impact the resource, and guided angling is, is definitely, unless done correctly, definitely could have a large impact. So. This fishing trip took place three years ago. And in the time since, I like to think that I've become more like Israel. I'm much more likely to put down my rod and just watch the river flow by, rather than focus on what I can extract from the water. But I have to admit that there is still a part of me that's constantly tallying the number of fish I did or didn't catch and beating myself up about it. It's a work in progress. In addition to my own shortcomings, I've also been wondering how Kieran's approach to fishing has changed. To find out, I called him up a few weeks ago, actually just before he was headed up to Elfin Cove for the steelhead season. You want to talk a little bit for me? Tell me where you are. Um, sitting here in our cabin in Estes Park, Colorado, in the middle of a snowstorm. So, <laughs> the first question I asked him was how he's managed to avoid the pitfalls that Mark was talking about. You know, I actually talked to Mark a lot when we were first looking and figuring stuff out. One of the things that we were talking about too was, you know, when they're paired up and on beds and stuff like that, like, of course, I don't don't fish to those fish. So we're kind of fishing in the the first little bit of the salt and then just rotating rivers. So, because we're really not doing that many trips out there, I would say four weeks. So that's like four groups of people, you know, when you got a decent amount of rivers on the coast to go fish, you can mix that up. We might fish one river one time for the whole year and uh, kind of spread out the pressure on those fish so that's kind of how i look at it in terms of um, getting to go enjoy and fish to these fish and having that cool experience but also protecting the resource a little bit and has he found those ideal clients how i talked to him about it is i was like hey like we're gonna go see these rivers the cool thing about these ones is they're so untouched so unexplored i was like there is that margin of error that you'll go in and not see a fish. And I was like, and we'll bounce out to another river or we'll just go catch halibut in the ocean or something, you know, or we'll go troll for king salmon 
Strangely enough, in almost the complete opposite move of what Kieran initially did by fishing the rivers for salmon with clients, Kieran is heading back to the boat so that he doesn't put too much pressure on the steelhead in the streams. You can hop out and then hop on the boat and uh, go fish for something else. That's what I've had mostly for clients is they're not so much diehard, oh, I just wanted to catch a steelhead. A lot of them are, they kind of want to take home a little bit of meat. And my final question for Kieran was whether or not this operation is sustainable, both financially for him and for the fish. You know, uh, honestly, I've been getting into eco tours. <laughs> so. I've always considered Kieran to be a diehard angler, so I was a little surprised when he said this. But he did make a compelling point. Like, I don't want to be the reason why those fish go extinct. I don't think anybody really wants to be the reason why. So that's one thing that we're kind of broadening out onto is uh, eco tours, you know, going in and just viewing wildlife, viewing glaciers and stuff like that. And it seems like just as there's been an increase in fishing, like that's also been like a big thing for us. You know, if you really want to fully protect something, you have to let it be. Two days ago, I got a text from Kieran saying that despite the fact that a client brought COVID up to the lodge during the 2021 steelhead season, they still managed to find some fish. We'll be back with another episode in like a month. Not sure what it's about yet, but we'll throw something together. I should also say, if you're interested in subscribing to The Drake Magazine, visit our website, drakemag.com. The spring issue is out, we're throwing summer together, Sometimes it's nice to read a story that you don't have to scroll through. I don't know. Check us out. Thanks for listening. This has been The Drake Cast.